0: Is something going on in matter, in material events, and
1: I, um, the reactions of the body. I also think in historical events that's a whole other issue. Um, they carry a psychological significance. Matter is not inert, that's a western prejudice from. The 16th century.
0: And and what that means is we think we can do whatever we want to the earth. We think we can do whatever we want to a forest. You know, I live here in Indianapolis. When I moved here, the, where I am living now was surrounded by forest. It is now one consistent strip mall for about the next 5 miles. We just go Whatever we want. We don't realize that matter has an intentionality of its own. So I think that's one way to try to understand what these guys were working on that the Western ego thinks it can control everything, not realizing things have a, have a mind. It's as if things have a mind of their own. No.
2: welcome uh, and uh, good morning or good whatever it is and wherever you are so this is a, a kind of a celebration today for me it's a uh, this episode marks the 20th episode of this project and its significance is when I when I started doing this podcast I read I forget where it was but somebody had written that you really need to get about 20 episodes out there because there are so many podcasts that uh that people people don't want to commit to something without a lot of content. And while that's not my my purpose which I'll I'll get to in a second, it, it certainly is a a marker What I mean by that is that my my purpose isn't to, you know, receive notoriety from this. It's actually research. And on on that note, I had a friend of mine who had had listened, was listening to the podcast, and he said, you know, I don't don't think you've ever really introduced yourself. (laughs) So I'm going to take a minute to do that. My name is John Price, and I'm your host of the sacred speaks. And I was thinking about the word host uh, last night. I looked it up and I did some kind of research into the etymology of the term host. Its origin is in Latin and it's rooted in, or its root also branches out to the term hospitality. It seems to be about um, having guests or being a guest. And so the you know this whole project started because I wanted to do research for something that I'm writing. And I also wanted to open up the 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 research that I was doing to others cuz this stuff really gets me excited. And I think why you know why wouldn't somebody be excited to get this material. Um so so it's my uh you know, my, my kind of egocentric perspective that says, well, this is, this is really enjoyable stuff. You know, why, why wouldn't somebody want to get this? So re- regardless of you know, how many or, or who is listening, I thought, well, great, this will kind of hold things accountable, hold me accountable to read all these books, to think about all these thoughts. It kind of gives me a platform for a year or two to do research. I'll I'll continue doing it. I'm having too much fun, but I set a container for one year and, uh, and I'm going to keep to that. So I'm about four months in and my, my plan is to continue doing this work for another eight. And then I'm going to start writing, um, kind of incorporating some of these ideas. But it just, it just frustrated me that with today's technology, um, you know, you read a book and, the author has done an enormous amount of work to prepare, uh, even before writing, to prepare themselves to th- to then write. And so this is this is this. Uh, I, I so I'm I'm initially from a music background. My my early twenties, I spent as a as a professional musician. We were touring and playing shows. And that started around the time I I was seven years old when I started playing guitar, and uh, I started taking lessons when I was in the third grade, and then had played in bands throughout my entire life. And writing songs and creating music has always been a factor of my life. And when I when I was in my twenties, and I. I was touring and uh, due to kind of shifting life circumstances and kind of an expanding awareness of who I was and what I wanted out of life, I, I didn't jump ship from music, but I, I shifted gears and got into academia and started down that path. I have two bachelor's degrees, one in speech communications and the second bachelor's in psychology. I have a master's in clinical psychology and a PhD in psychology, um, specializing in Jungian studies, and it's it's that it's really that endeavor that opened things up for me. When I was writing my dissertation, I learned, I I I made connection with, and I learned things that I I had always been searching for. So it was when I finished my my doctorate that I kind of went into a. I wouldn't crisis is probably a strong word, but I freaked out. <laughs> I had a little bit of a a freak out because I, as much as it as difficult as it is to write, I loved it, and I and I can't stand it too. So it's this <laughs> kind of journey of. <laughs> Oh, of 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 self abuse that um, that I, and I'm, I'm I'm joking, but it it does it is a it is a difficult experience to try to really clarify your thinking. so that's this whole project i'm I'm looking at religion and philosophy and psychology and whatever in the hell interests me <laughs> catches my my interest. Um, so this this path has been fascinating. I'm, I'm currently I currently work as a psychotherapist. I run a practice in uh, with my wife in Houston, and um, it it kind of speaks to my, my practice speaks to my personality. I'm I'm all over the place. I say my my the youngest person I work with is about eight, and the oldest is about eighty eight. So I love to see you know where we're coming from. And where we're going, where we've been, where we're heading, and in one day, in my um, psychotherapy practice, I get that. Um, my kind of, I've worked in all kinds of places. I mean, I've done work in adoption and trauma with families. I've worked in residential treatment. I have gone into families' homes, and looked at the kind of interrelationships in the family system. I obviously work in private practice with groups and individuals, families, couples. And uh, I've traveled the country leading talks and trainings on uh, parenting and um, how how systems can more effectively um, create relationship, healthy relationships with people who probably haven't had that many healthy relationships so that they can feel better about themselves and about their lives. And we do that by seeking a connection and building trust, not using some kind of punitive strategy to get compliance. Um and I won't, I could go off on that, but I won't. I'm currently teaching at uh pretty regularly at the Young Center of Houston, younghouston.org J-U-N-G, houston.org, and uh, I've taught at the graduate level in psychology. Um, classes that range from sex, drugs, and rock and roll to parenting to William Blake, class on you know, William Blake and some of his work, the psychology of fame, it really varies. And, um, and I love that space also because I think teaching has become such an important area of my life because learning is so important so that they go hand in hand. I just realized that that, that hasn't really been a factor in this podcast. I haven't been a factor in this podcast because I guess on some level, I don't feel like I'm a factor in this podcast. Um, I, I kind of want to disidentify myself. I'm, I'm really curious uh, and I'm I'm finding people to talk with so that I can learn more about subjects that I'm really interested in and uh, and it broadens out uh, you know people introduce me to other people and I get recommendations and um, so I've got a lot of really cool people I'm talking with over the next few months and that's gonna continue growing and um, thank you for listening I think that's I think it's really cool that anybody's listening. And uh it it's, it's it's grown a bit. I mean, I think this week um we're almost to 50 countries that have been um 50 countries in which somebody has listened to this process. And I think it's been listened to um over 6,000 times so it's it, there is an interest and uh and i'm just i'm i'm smitten with that cuz i think it's so damn cool uh so thanks thanks for listening I, I i'm i i want recommendations and if you if you're thinking as you're listening that oh my gosh this would be so cool to hear from this person like send me an email and uh and i'll do my best to to get them on i'll see if it fits of course but the, the net is, you know, initially the net's pretty wide. So I, I'll i be talking with um, a woman who does music therapy in hospitals. I will be talking with a man who's created a conscious business and teaches mind-body um, practices throughout his um, his business, and it's gone worldwide. He's got it's called Define uh, I've got a couple of religious people, some philosophers, some religion professors, um, musicians. So I, I'm I'm just kind of shaking stuff up and seeing what falls out. So I'll take your recommendations. On that note, I I want to quickly talk about music. So with a background in music and uh, and, and really using this, podcast as an as an excuse to buy a bunch of cool um, editing um, software and, and and microphones and interfaces and um it, it's given me the ability to really dig back into my music background and, and 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 just connect with music on a deeper level each week when i produce an episode i think about kind of the bands that I'd like to use, I kind of go through the process of figuring out who would be right for the episode. For the most part, they're friends and people who've had an influence in my musical upbringing, and uh, it, it's it's uh, again, it's a fantastic container. I listen to the entire catalog of these artists, and it's been radical because I end up staying in that musical space and I'm finding that I'm listening to music way more than I have in years and when in my early 20s I was seeing a show almost every night and that's not an exaggeration I was I was going to music almost constantly going to see music almost constantly so now as a (laughs) you know in the in the quiet of my office I get to put headphones on which I recommend by the way I, I do recommend listening to, not not on the earbuds, I mean like uh, some headphones, um, listening to all this music, and it has just been outstanding. Um, so most of the bands you're going to hear, I'll, I'll always use these intro clips as an opportunity to kind of set things up. It's not only for the listener, but I think it's an important practice too. It's like a journal, kind of writing, marking the occasion where how did how did I meet the person? How did this come to be? What's the music? Why? So I, I take this opportunity to to kind of speak it and uh, and and mark it permanently. Uh, well, as permanent it can be, um, in the episode, and uh, and there there it is. It's it's saved. So the music this week is from a band called. Bad, Bad, Not Good. And while I don't personally know them, I, I message with them and ask permission to use the material. It's going to be one of the few groups that's a little more modern um, and, and less connected with my early history. The reason why I'm using them today is because I, when I was writing my dissertation, I, I listened to about four or five bands, um, kind of le- not a lot of lyrics, um, a lot of instrumental work, I struggle when I when I write listening to music with lyrics. I get too interested in the the lyrics, so I I listen to a number of bands. I'm going to probably bring as many of them as I can into the podcast because they've been so important in in my work um, as I write. Um, So I was in a I was in Colorado at an ice cream shop once, and I I looked at the young guy behind the counter. I was like, "Who is this playing?" And he said, "Ah, oh, it's bad, bad, not good." I immediately got in the car and downloaded the music. And they they entered into my kind of um, my playlist for for writing. So one thing I want to change up is is because I've been growing in the amount of music that I'm listening to, this process that will be reflected in this process, meaning the podcast. I have been including one little snippet at the beginning of each episode. I have theme music from Modern Nations, and then I play a full song at the very end. I'd like to add to that. So my plan is that I'm going to have a snippet at the beginning, have the theme music from Modern Nations, and somewhere through this intro clip play a full song, and then play a song at the very end too. Um, I think music sets us up in a different framework, and. Having a full song at the beginning, my intention is to kind of shift the listener's focus into this more imaginal space. So I just taught a class on the body and consciousness, and I used a quote from Beethoven, which is something like, um, music is the intermediary between the sensual and the spiritual, so l- I'm gonna bring that in on, on for you know for personal reasons because I like music. Um, I also want to introduce any listener to a lot of these bands, and I want to bridge that space intra-psychically for each of you who's listening to set that kind of container, um, an important container that involves you getting into a more poetic and less material frame of mind and music tends to do that. So I want to play a song right now. Um, It's, it's from, uh, and I'll introduce bad, bad, not good in a sec, but um, this is Charlotte day Wilson. Uh, This is bad, bad, not good featuring Charlotte day Wilson and her voice just, um, is, is, is beautiful. This is from their album three Roman numeral, uh, Three, it's called in your eyes. You can look up bad, bad, not good at badbadnotgood.com. These guys came together with a mutual interest in R&B, jazz, and hip hop, and I'm gonna have them in the ep- or in this series, in this podcast, a few times because. They've got so much material, and it's so versatile that I just can't wrap my hands around it. I can't get my arms around it. So I'm probably going to use them a couple of different times. Um, I, in just this episode, between the first little snippet that I played, which is uh, off their album four, Differently Still, then this song, In Your Eyes, then the last song, Can't Leave the Night, which I highly recommend listening to with headphones on. Um, it, it, You'll see, um, for any listener who does listen to the tunes, you'll see the kind of versatility that they have. And believe me, it gets much wider. These guys, are, I'm just so impressed by what they do. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll play you this song, and it's just, I, I again, I... I just love the song. So here is uh, In Your Eyes. That's good. Um, okay, so now let's get to it. Today's participant wrote to me, I said to, uh, after we did the episode, I I emailed Gary and said, hey, what's your, what kind of music you listen to? He said he liked the Beatles and jazz. And as soon as he wrote jazz, I thought, all right, I got it. Bad, Bad, Not Good is the one. So today's participant, I'm going to read a bit from his the back of his book that got us into this conversation. At the, the book is called at the, it is titled At the Heart of Matter, Synchronicity in Jung's Spiritual Testament by J. Gary Sparks. This is an extraordinary book. I'm reading from the back of the book. It is, an important, it is important both for its clarification of the phenomenon of synchronicity and its implications for the survival of Western civilization. It also points the way toward an integration of matter and spirit that has eluded humankind for so long. Rather than the conflict between the two that has fueled too many wars, large and small, it offers us the gifts of balance and creativity. Um, The author, let's see, uh, yeah, the author, a Jungian analyst schooled in religious studies and the sciences, takes readers gently through a basic understanding of physics from classical Newtonian to modern quantum and weds that to C.G. Jung's long long standing inquiry into the enigmatic relationship between matter and spirit selfhood and destiny uh, here we meet the conjunction in time of three great minds swiss psychiatrist Jung, nobel prize winning physicist wolfgang Pauli, and the celebrated analyst and scholar murray louise von franz j gary sparks is a graduate of bucknell university in lewisburg the pacific school of religion in berkeley and the cg young institute in zurich switzerland He's co-editor of Edward Edinger's Science of the Soul, 2002, and Ego and the Self, the Old Testament Prophets, 2000. He's widely known for his lectures and seminars on the significance and application of Jungian psychology. He lives in Indianapolis. And he's fun. I'll let the conversation get into it, but um, I've really enjoyed getting to know Gary, and I knew I would. Um, I knew I would. He's, he's a neat guy. So the, the you can reach Gary... At uh, let me see I'm at j g sparks net And I said earlier bad uh and this is this project is at the sacredspeaks.com and you can also find it on Instagram and Twitter by searching the Sacred Speaks and Facebook. Um, okay, I think, I think that does it. I know this is long, and maybe I'm taking a long time on the intro because I'm I'm celebrating the 20th. Um, this is not typical for those of you who are new, um, but I, I do like to set things up and uh, con- kind of contextualize the episodes, but I've not really introduced myself, so I'm, I'm glad for the opportunity to celebrate and to do so. Uh, The theme music for the podcast is Modern Nations. Get them at modernnationsmusic.com. And I am so grateful to you as a listener, to every single participant. Um, This project took a ton of time and a learning curve. Uh, I started to learn how to build websites, and or build my website, and edit. Uh, I I do all this uh, audio editing, recording, and... uh, content, all that stuff. So it's a real labor of love. And I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity. guess one note on the audio. It's uh, over video chat. So, um, it's not as great as I'd want it, but content's great. So I wasn't going to change it. Um, so imagine you're listening while on video chat. So thank you for listening, Gary. Thank you for, uh, for having this conversation. I have, uh, I look forward to more and Gary actually agreed to do more. So (laughs) he'll be back in the project. Uh, okay. We'll leave it there. When I talked to to Jim about, you know, I sent him an email and just said, you know, I really want to chat with somebody about, um, fairy tales and dreams and mythology, mythology being the, the, the primary area of interest he he res- responded pretty quickly with uh, with your name and i was excited cuz i've i've read your stuff and i've heard your name for years now and so to be able to sit with you i'm just grateful for your time and i'm grateful oh, for the words um, so when we're talking about um, mythology in particular and i think we'll get around to you know the religious spaces and yeah. spirituality and, and of course, getting a little bit into your book and the the thing I want to set up is not only talking about your book, but talking about how those ideas have evolved for you. And, yeah. um, but, but the thing that occurs to me that I, I, maybe it's, maybe it's just me seeing this that I'd really like to start with is the idea of duality. Yeah. And so would you just kind of take us down that journey about, because everything I read has these dual structure and, and, and you know whether it's physics, from you know classical physics to quantum physics, or yeah, uh, you know Freudian and Jungian, or subject-object, you know where, wherever you go, we tend to see these dual structures. So if you could riff on that for a while, uh, we'll we'll see where the where the spirit takes us.
0: Well, you know, for Jung, this idea of the opposites is central, and if you look through the Red Book. This is what he slowly comes to. With Freud, you know, you have the ego and you have the unconscious. And the ego makes the unconscious conscious. End of story. And Jung realized, way too simple, that any unconscious issue is always a polarity too good, too bad, too pure, too slutty, too rich, too poor, too conservative, too liberal, uh, too inner, too outer. And that is not to be feared. For him, that's the fundamental structure of the way the psyche grows. When it tries to create a new us, it does so by giving us the pieces of that new us as a conflict. And by enduring that conflict, then whatever it is, let's say the psyche, generates a third, which resolves the conflict. And that third is the real you. So that's fundamental to Jung, Jung's idea of individuation, you might say. Now, I think he also realized though, that basic paradigm is also involved in his Dialogues with Pali. That there was the psychological view of events, and there was the physical view of events, two apparently contradictory understandings. But both those guys can say, hey, you know what? There's a secret symmetry here. And the reason there's a polarity is we have created that polarity since the Middle Ages, and it's false. Matter and psyche really are the same thing. I've got some quotes if you ever want to hear as we go along. Um, But our Western mind perceives either something as spiritual, or something is physical. And what those two were working on was the physical side is as much psychic as the psychic side is physical. And they were trying to forge their view of the synthesis with the help of of their unconsciousness that we get back to realizing that the material world is at the same time a psychological For example, I always tell this story. Um, A colleague of mine, Ann McGuire,
1: sadly now deceased, she was a uh, um,
0: dermatologist and analyst in England, tells a story of a boy brought to her with um, psoriasis in the form of a mustache from his upper lip down the side of his cheeks. So as she said, he looked like a frowning clown. And she treated, I don't know word I can say all, but I think much of her dermatological practice psychologically. And she brought the family in and the story came out that the father was a snooker player. Snooker, I, actually I don't know it, but I guess it's a form of billiards, English billiards. And apparently these snooker holes are kind of meat markets as well. And he was a champion, the father, and was off uh, playing Striker on the weekends. And she was afraid he was going to have an affair. When this was discussed and trust was reestablished,
1: the boy's psoriasis went away.
0: So her take on that was his body knew of that sadness, his body expressed in an image of a frown, the sadness in the family. The material world acted symbolically. So in those moments, there is no split between psyche and matter. Matter is operating psychically. It could have been a dream that the boy dreamt the family was sad, but in fact, his body became the dream. So that that polarity going from Jung's initial understanding of how the psyche develops morphed into a much larger question of the Western worldview which separates things that also need to be united, that the material world can convey, can convey symbolic significance. And that's what they worked on. Uh, Pali died young, 1958, and Jung survived him what, by... Three years, and then he passed his work on the von and well, uh, uh, she
2: set that up real quick for people who don't who don't know who Pauli is.
0: And- Wolfgang Pauli was one of the. I guess it depends on how you count. One of the the five founders of quantum mechanics. The quantum mechanics is the foundation of well, the computer, the cell phone modern medicine, cancer treatments, where they penetrated into the sequence of the atom. What they found, which is so important, is things inside the atom don't work causally. You can't predict, here's a cause, here's an effect. They had to talk about probability of occurrence. What that means is, there's some playroom between when something is triggered and what the outcome is. What happens that that electron that's triggered may go one way or it may go another way? It opened up the possibility that there's something going on in the universe besides making things happen. There, there's a happening w- within within it. Well, you see, that's the foundation of synchronicity. So Pali then... Um, was one of the five: uh, Pauli, Heisenberg, Werner Heisenberg, Niels Bohr. Um, is four: Niels Bohr and um, Aaron Schrödinger. Those four guys pretty much finalized. Uh, it's called the quantum, uh, the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum. Um, Pauli then got a job at the polytechnical technical university in Zurich, sort of Zurich, itself. MIT, immediately started getting into a mess. His his dad died. He got divorced, started drinking, uh, getting in bar fights. And this is a guy who would eventually become a Nobel Laureate. Well, you don't do that if you're a hair professor in Missouri. So he ended up in Young's Consulting Room and had a short, about two-year analysis with a student of Young's, a woman. Young said, you, you need to be talking to women. Um, now that's where it, it, it ended. Had it ended there, there wouldn't have been much to go on. But Pali was Austrian and half Jewish, so when the war started, Pali had to flee. Had the you know, Zurich to Germany is about a 35 minute drive. Had the Nazis invaded, he'd have been a goner, so he got went to the States, uh, back roots. I think by by Lisbon, actually, took a, took a boat over and um, worked at the Institute for Advanced Studies with Einstein. So he and Einstein were good friends. Uh, when the bombs went off, Howley got depressed. He was the only physicist who didn't work on the bombs. But it was his physics that made the bomb possible. And in fact, it was his student, um, uh, Robert Oppenheimer, J. Robert Oppenheimer, who was the head of the Manhattan Project. So probably got depressed. You know, the, these guys were discovering the secrets of the atom between games of beer pong. There were you know, <laughs> 25 geniuses playing, having fun, <laughs> unraveling the secrets of the universe. But... He got really upset, and he felt America had fallen into evil in its absence of response to what had just happened. So he went back to Switzerland, returned, even though he was offered a position at uh, in Princeton, went back to Switzerland, got his job back at the uh, ATA, they call it, the Federal Polytechnical Institute, and took his dreams back to Yale. And so from then, from 19, what would that be, 40, when did the war end, 46? I forget exactly, but from from then until the end of his life, for about the next 10 or 12 years, he and Jung discussed his dreams about what had gone wrong that science could now obliterate the earth. And those dreams have recently, well recently, when I wrote the book about 10, 15, 10, 12 years ago. Actually, I just recently heard from this author. took those dreams to Young. And the dreams are a response to his question, what, what do we need to understand that the world doesn't destroy itself? And one of the main themes is that matter has a psychological or spiritual aspect. So that's how Pali and Young came to, to know each other.
2: Well, so that's where people's heads explode.
0: Yeah. Well, we don't understand it, but um, there is something going on in matter, in material events. And I, I would add in um, the reactions of the body. Mm-hmm. I also think in historical events. That's a whole other issue. Um, That carry a psychological significance. Matter is not inert. That's a Western prejudice from the 16th century. And and what that means is we think we can do whatever we want to the earth. We think we can do whatever we want to a forest. You know, I live here in Indianapolis. When I moved here, where I am living now was surrounded by forests. It is now one consistent strip mall for about the next five miles. We just go and do whatever we want. We don't realize that matter has an intentionality of its own. So I think that's one way to try to understand what these guys were working on, that the Western ego thinks it can control everything, not realizing things have a, have a mind, it's as if things have a mind of their own.
2: Yeah, hence the, hence the explosion. I mean, that we sit in a lineage that doesn't get that. So I'm glad you no. talked about the 16th century. Can we chat no. a bit about what happens then, what goes on in the 16th century?
0: Well, um, in, in a way, it's a positive development. Rationality took the place of superstition. And the downside of pre-16th century was witch hunts and um, all sorts of hocus pocus that wouldn't support medical research. But on the other hand, as Polly said, we went too far and we denuded the material world of its spiritual power. So it, it, it apparently had to happen or we wouldn't have science we would still have polio we would still be burning witches but on the other hand it has created an inflated sense of human effectiveness that doesn't take account of a bigger picture
2: would you define spiritual power
0: well jung has a uh, has his own definition it's kind of technical, but let me give it to you. I you may know, need to repeat it. Um, actually, this is von Franz's paraphrase uh, from Number and Time. Um, Spirit is the factor which creates images in the inner field of vision and organizes them into a meaningful order. Let me try to explain that.
3: Yeah.
0: You know, you work with dreams. You know when you have a dream and you understand it, the next dream is a step ahead of the previous dream. Once you understand that, the next dream comes along and gives you either a fuller understanding of what you've just been through uh, or elucidates what you've been through. There is this sense that if we do nothing, other than pay attention to the images in our dreams, they evolve on their own. You have to keep up with them, but they evolve on their own. Jung said, why? Why don't you keep having the same dream over and over and over again? And the answer is, because there's something in us that sees to it. Once dream is understood, the next one evolves. That's the meaningful order. So Jung just gives that a, uh, a word, spirit. Spirit is what is the word he gives for the fact that we have the capacity to make inner images at all. And for the fact that once a dream is understood, it moves forward. Now that forward movement, here's where the rub comes. That next image, I can give you an example if you like. Absolutely. Um, Could occur in a dream, or it could occur an event in the other world. The world when it is time for an image to be made manifest and appear in reality. I'll give you I'll give you an example I just went through. It just happened to me. I had a dream about six months ago that I was supposed to take Jung to a conference. And I pick him up and we're driving to the conference and he turns to me and he says, Gary, how's that work on the stranger coming? And I wake up. Now the stranger is a figure in Pali's dreams. Yes. And the stranger for Pali has several meanings, but one is the archetypal background of science. Why that's important is Pali could show that we think science is rational But in fact, it starts in an image. A scientist gets an image. They may not be aware of it, but he was aware how his dreams supported his research, would initiate his research, and then he worked it through, you know, logic, quote, scientifically. So, you see, that gives gives us a way to get in to examine the foundation of scientific work and ask ourselves, is this a development we want or is it a development we don't want? Well, so that's the string. So I say to myself, what the hell am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> I've already written a book on it. I don't know what to do. So I let it slip. So about three months ago, uh, the director who I think, in the guy's I think is a friend of your, your friend, Sean, um, uh, the uh, director of the LA Institute, Wants me to write an ad, uh, article for their upcoming issue of Psychological Perspectives on Number and Time. The, the magazine is uh, that issue. It's the Psychological Perspectives is the journal of the LA Young Institute. Mm-hmm. So I did, and we we kind of hit it off. And he said to me, "Well, would you come out and give a lecture to us?" And I said, "Well, what would you like it to be on?" And he said, "How about the archetypal background of science?" There it played itself out in reality. That was the answer to my question. That's what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to write a lecture for the L.A. So when when we get to know our inner story and we're waiting for the next installment, often that installment will be outside. The classic example, which is even more, which is very dramatic. Uh, Really, I wouldn't believe if I hadn't seen. I was working with a woman who um, had dreams of being gang raped. Now, you know, the first thing you do, of course, is you inquire, was there any abuse in childhood? She swore no. So I said, um, let's just see where this goes. Well, the, those gangs became one man. And one man became her first love when she was 15. She told me the story that she fell in love with this boy in high school, and her mother, who was viciously controlling, said, if you continue seeing that boy, I'm going to commit suicide. So she broke it off. So 25 years later, she was 40. She was having these dreams. And I said, you know, I don't know what this means. I don't know why... This boy is in your dreams, but let's let's try to figure that out. I said, "Why don't you go downtown to Indianapolis, where she was raised, and and ask around? Can you find anybody who knows where this guy is? Let's see if we can find him, and maybe you'll get some sense of why he's in your dreams." She went down to to the Near East Side and um, came back. Said, "Well, I asked. Nobody has seen him or heard from him since high school." I said, well don't worry, we've seen the dreams evolve, we'll see another dream showing us why he's in your dreams. She came back next week, white as a ghost. She said, guess who called, on the west coast, after 25 years. All he said was, hi, this is, I'll say John, Uh, we have some things to talk about. <laughs> she said, Yeah, I know. <laughs> they, <clears throat> they got together, and what she realized was she had always admired him for his intelligence and discipline. She's a very intelligent woman with no discipline. And so she got her act together, applied to go back to university, or to go to university. She had a high school education, and um, the dream stopped. So, you see that? The dream series could have ended in a dream, but it ended in a synchronistic event, which is is um, got both eyes scratching their heads, saying, "You know, the psyche is not only inside. How is it the material world can act just like a dream?" That's the spirit. It, it the image which is generated and which moves life forward. Uh, the the factor which generates images, in the inner field of vision, but also now we know outer field of vision, and arranges images in a a, uh, meaningful order, meaning that next image explained the past four dreams occurred outside. So spirit is always a teleological concept.
2: Define that, will you?
0: Well, goal-directed. Yeah. Moving towards a goal. So goal-directed is as important as causal unlike Freud and I think unlike most psychology
2: say something about that most psychology what do you mean
3: uh,
0: I as far as I know no other psychology speaks of a foreknowledge which is trying to generate the future
2: well that's radically at odds with our framework today. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so why, why mine through quantum physics? Why get involved in a conversation with Pauli? Oh, because it was this
0: fact that the electron once stimulated in an atom has a movement that cannot be predicted. It moves. Apparently, on its own accord. It may go from level one to level two, level three. It might go from level one to level three directly. It might go from one to three to four. It might go from one to two to four. And so they're forced to talk about probability of movement. Well, that's what a synchronicity is. There's a certain probability that these events occur. Jung never wants to say they're caused. And that's an analog to the way the quantum physicists were forced to give up this idea of, you know, Newton, you roll a bowling ball, hit another bowling ball, it goes off, cause effect, cause effect. Breaks down. And causality for Jung also breaks down when we try to understand the individual, which is purposes are as telling for our healing as our causes.
2: So today we see a lot of people that are adopting quantum mechanics, quantum physics, yeah. f- to support their argument. And yeah. I, I guess I don't I don't know all that much about it, and I don't want to put myself in that category of somebody who's kind of playing around in a in a world that I I, I don't really know much about. So I want to play devil's advocate. I mean, so two thousand seven, yeah. you write the book. Current day, how have kind of scientific opinions and experiences and knowledge changed from 07 to today, and how does that influence this perspective?
0: I don't think that has changed. Um, The thing that's changed, the thing that's being challenged, which isn't really something we make a great deal of, um, is Einstein's theory. Uh, you know, he says things can't go faster than light. But apparently if you, and I'm dying to talk to a physicist to find out more about this. Um, if you, and how do you do it? Take an electron, they put it in a little jar and get it in an airplane. Whatever they do, if they separate pieces of an atom and they trigger the atom in one place, its part in the other place will respond instantaneously. Mm -hmm. It's going faster than the speed of light. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the big questions that Einstein's work does fit for the macro universe, but it fails to account for uh, what they call quantum entanglement. Particles somehow belong together um, in an atom, if you separate them and you stimulate one, the other one will respond instantaneously, even if it's on the other side of the Earth. Mm-hmm. That's as far, as far as I know, um, the quantum work is largely accepted. Now, some of the challenges to it, as far as I know, are, are not taken seriously, but, but I am not a physicist to say for sure. Some people say, well, because the idea is that there's no causality. Uh, Determinative causality doesn't hold. And some will say, well, it does hold because there's another universe where something's happening in another place. We just don't see it. That there's something, there's an event here, there's a response over there which is causing an event here. Who knows? Uh, But I think these guys were not trying to be precise in that sense, but just to recognize we are faced with experiences that make sense, but not causally. You can't say that my dream caused the director of the LA Institute to ask me to to speak out there. I mean, that's magical thinking. And yet, it is not a meaningless event for me, because it carries my dream forward. So, How is that possible? So here's
2: here here's the word that people use to critique this, right? They say this is chance. Oh, Jung says it's chance too.
0: But he says these chances happen more often than chance allows. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Which is to say that we have we have no idea what the hell is making it happen. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, you know,
0: and he he was not given to superstitious thinking yeah. or magical thinking. Um, but he's also interested in phenomena.
2: Yeah, he was viewed as and, a hell of a lot more loony than Freud was at, at the time. Oh yeah,
0: but you see, once you re- once you start having these experiences and you watch somebody's life change. Yeah, because of a quote coincidence. Yeah, if you're taking the human being seriously, you can't dismiss the facts that help growth occur.
2: That's uh, some just a phrase that goes through my mind right there. Is something that I I think often, which is we can't take things literally, but we certainly need to take them seriously and to yeah. ad- adopt that attitude that says, okay, wait a second, I I've got to actually pay attention and. As you'll yeah. as you'll know, and I'm sure you've told a lot of people when they come into your practice and they say, Look, dreams, what is this bullshit? I i yeah. don't, you know, and, and you just say, Okay, look, just you know, put something by your bed, put a journal by yeah. your bed and just kind of pay attention to it, and boof, you know, then they've got something. Yeah. But it you know, it's not a parlor trick that you then say, right. Oh oh wow, I you know, you actually have to attend to this over and over and over again to get the nature of that nature
0: yeah i mean you want you can get the idea that the synchronicity thing is a free lunch but look how hard that woman had worked yeah before the synchronicity and you know i spent three years writing that book for that little synchronistic <laughs> invitation to occur so it you really it, it really presupposes a responsible ego
2: uh, and you said it earlier, Jim. When Jim and I spoke a while ago, we we talked a bit about discipline. Um, yeah, yeah, crucial. I, I think that's imperative, and that, it's imperative. Yeah, doing doing. Little no discipline, nothing happens. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: Oh, no. so, um, right. Maybe this this may be kind of taking us too far afield right now, but I'm I'm. I'm kind of curious about the relationship between the, you know, in quotations, the Jungian and the Freudian. Yeah. What's going on there and what does each not recognize in the other?
0: Well, of course, I think it's Freud who doesn't recognize. The Freudian approach is valid up to a point, which is causality. I've just spent, what, how many minutes saying how limited causality is. But I would say, on the whole, causality is an endangered species in the sense, how many people are irresponsible in life? And that's an absence of a responsible ego. Look at our foreign policy, the crazy things we do. And, oh my gosh, why do they hate us? There's no connection between what we do and being able to assess the response to what we do. That's that's ego work. The I, not ego and egotism, but I, uh, the ego as the, the uh, effective agent of action. That's what Freud is good for. And, and honestly, I spend a fair amount of my time working just in that paradigm and so did Jung.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: It is not, Jung is never saying Freud is wrong, uh, but limited. And the limit is Freud cannot conceptualize purpose. I think it's that simple. Um, So, you know, well, take, take that, um, take the synchronicity example uh, I mentioned about the woman. How many therapists would jump on that and say, you have been sexually abused and you don't know it? Because they can't think symbolically. Now, this woman was not out of touch. She was not passive. She was not a um, uh, compulsive victim that sexual imagery was a symbol for a part of her psyche that was trying to develop into the future. And if you don't realize that, that imagery can sometimes be a replay of the past or it can be anticipating a future development. And if you can't make that distinction, you're going to destroy it. And anyone who has a creative bent to them cannot be put in a... um, all the time, cannot be put all the time in a cause and effect box. They're having imagery, which looks like it's from the past, perhaps, but it's not a, a sign, as Jung would call it. It's a symbol for development that's trying to move into the future. And we sure as hell better know how to distinguish the two. And the,
2: the, the jewel there, I'm, I'm assuming, is m- meaning and purpose.
0: Yeah, a larger, it's going somewhere. Life is going
2: somewhere. Yeah, a larger sense of connection, larger possibility.
0: A larger identity, which is information. And I think the more that future identity has a role to play in the society, the more important, I'm going to use the word again, that teleological, goal-oriented, telos being the Greek word, uh, goal that teleological dimension of the psyche is active. And it's aiming to deepen and broaden who they are for them to play the role in the society they were put here to play.
2: So what do you say about technology?
0: Uh, It is killing us, I think. Um, What interests me is not so much how it affects our relations to others, which it does, but how it affects our relation to ourselves. I went to the grocery store a couple of days ago. A woman got out of her car, stopped, before she closed her door, checked her texts. She closed her door, walked about 10 feet. She checked her texts again. She got to the road, little road in front of the supermarket, Stopped, checked for texts again. Cross the road to go to the door. Stop. checked for texts again. Now, she has no relationship to that walk from the car to the supermarket. Mm-hmm. It is total distraction. And I think for me, I mean, certainly you can do, and there are books, some good books. I can tell you about one of them. Um, uh, looking at its social effect, but it's internal effect is we can no longer sit and hear our inner process and that scares the shit out
2: well and it, isn't that why the culture is providing so many of these um opportunities in meditation and you know i mean this is like you could very well be now i think that it's, yeah. it's everywhere we look people are trying to meditate and mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of times they're doing it for the wrong reasons but they're they're Me, certainly no. trying what, uh, you were going to say a book about distraction.
0: Um, I think it's called Alone Together by, right? I think it's Sherry, S H E R R I or Y. Uh, I can check your Google if you like. Turkle, T U R K E L R T U R K L E. She teaches at MIT. And it's, you know, it, it, she interviews she students and, and, and she was shocked how many people would say, if I could get a robot that have good sex with, i get rid of my boyfriend or girlfriend.
2: Uh, so, okay, again, I've got this um, devil's advocate inside of me, right? Yeah. Uh, throughout, I, I did this talk a while ago where I was talking to a bunch of parents in a, in a gym, and I was saying, you know, because they're freaking out about their kids and about what their kids are doing. Yeah. And, I said, look, you know, there was somebody like me having a talk in a gym just like this many years ago about a guy who's on television shaking his hips and everybody's scared out of their minds that their kids are going to be so sexualized, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we've been doing this. There's always this kind of yeah. demon of advancing s- social, uh, uh, I guess, technology. I mean, that's that's, so there's a pattern in that. I'm aligned with you. I mean, I, I think that's actually the essence yeah. is the distractibility and, you know, her her disconnection with her feet on the ground in the moment when she's walking yeah. to the store. And this is also a part of that kind of cultural phenomena where those who are kind of have progressed in their lives look back and go, ah, you kids, you...
0: Well, um, the thing that, that stresses me is that we are using now the machine as our metaphor. Oh yeah. Uh, How many job offers include in the description the ability to uh, multitask? That's a metaphor for microchip, for microprocessor. Or I'm online. Or my system crashed. And I think if we draw our metaphors from a machine, the danger is we become a machine.
2: Well, that's, I, I mean, that's, that's what the research in consciousness, that's the whole, the whole metaphor is machine. Heart, yeah. Hard drive
0: and... You know. Yeah. Well, that's scary because that's the seat of fashion.
2: Say more about that.
0: Well, when I don't count, machines don't have emotion. When a population can be talked into having no emotions, that's the foundation of fascism.
2: There's been a lot of stories written about that okay, so let's let's bounce this around a bit. so but and if you if you talk to anybody who's in the AI scene right now, yeah that's that's the that's the imaginal world. You know, yeah. Tom Metzinger has a book called Neural Correlates of Consciousness, and he's got all these amazing, you know, thought experiments about what happens when AI becomes conscious. Yeah. Do you buy it? What are your thoughts? Uh, what do you mean when AI
0: becomes conscious? Well, when
2: it becomes feeling and having emotions and these machines oh. are operating as humans do. I mean, that's the, the fear of the, the, that world of consciousness yeah. right now is really looking at that.
0: Yeah, well, I'm going in the opposite direction. Not so much when machines feel, but when people don't. Uh-huh. Uh There's a wonderful little book called The Third Reich of Dreams. And it's it's uh, uh, Charlotte, and then B-E-R-A-D-T, Charlotte Barat, Barat. Actually, I met her niece many years ago. Charlotte Barat was a Hausfrau in Germany in the 30s. And as the Nazis came to power, she really at great risk and must have had a wonderful ability to act calm, started asking her neighbors about their dreams and recorded them. So their book is about the dreams the Germans had as Hitler came to power. In In one of the dreams... The dream went something like, since the Nazis have taken control, two two words are now forbidden, I and God. Mm -hmm. So what I see in our relation to machines, not as tools, but as beings, um, the loss of I. I don't want. I don't feel. I don't need. I don't speak out. And that's that's what happens when machines become our metaphors. We think like something that doesn't um, doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. Don't you think that's
2: kind of the tension here is that people who want to even use a term like God oppose advances like that, because then they're saying that's the death of God.
0: Uh, I kind of agree with that.
2: (laughs) I mean, Nietzsche comes to mind there as a, you know, as the pandemonium that happens when, when you know, the capacity to imagine the divine and kind of connect with and merge with the divine, everything gets into chaos. I mean, that's the well, big fear. Nietzsche
0: was a deeply religious person. He just had no stomach for the prevailing image of God. Right. But if you look at his worship of The Earth as the source of the spirit. I think this is one of the places Jung got it It was from Nietzsche. Um, What they're trying to preserve is humanity response responsiveness responsibility, not being subsumed into a a technological or impersonal system where I don't say, no, no, you're not going to do that.
2: In your book, you were talking about the, the time of the spirit to the time of the material or the matter. Yeah. Yeah. That's Ion. And then what's next?
0: Hopefully getting the two together. In other words, this is Jung's argument in Ion that Roman era was a cacophony of hedonism, which would have burnt up civilization. Mm -hmm. And what the church did was come in and provide a spirit to control that. And spirit, in the sense that I used it, in when we talked about it a moment ago, a a non-material strength to, to fight the destructive pool of material desires, which has just gotten out of control. But after a thousand years, life became kind of boring. So there was a swing, mm-hmm. and that, that then ushered in a period of materiality. Um, the Enlightenment, um, scientific revolution, the age of exploration, all focused on the Earth. The first thousand years was focused on heaven. That itself has played itself out. And we're at a crucial transition for you know, where we've got to stop the pendulum swings. And that's why the spirit in matter becomes the issue today. How can we have both the material world and see it as a vehicle for our spiritual development? So that spirit isn't something apart.
2: So Earlier, when you were talking about Freud and Jung, yeah. y- you were saying you said something, and I forget the words that you used, but it it tapped on a sentiment or something that I've been thinking a lot about, which is this both and idea. Yeah, I I don't get the sense that the kind of re- the reductive materialist sees the both and possibility. Oh no, there's not. I, I no. however, I, I do hear this trend that when you go over to kind of the other side, for lack of a, you know, yeah. if we stay in this kind of dual structure, I do get this sense that there's at least more of a capacity to be in the both and space. There's still yeah. equally a capacity to become a fundamentalist in that space, but I, I just get I this sense so. that, that there's uh, a... either and or.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um... Fundamentalism, that's a whole other kettle of fish. You know, uh, <laughs> if you look at AA, which I highly respect, yeah, they don't care how you feel. What I hear from folks who have been through AA is, oh, they're just feelings. Don't listen to them. Yeah. Well, when those feelings are telling you to go Go have unprotected sex and get drunk and use drugs, it's good not to listen to them. So that 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 paradigm of the spiritual cannibal still has relevance for certain folks in certain stages of development. Then what we try to do, uh, I never work with anybody who's actively fighting an addiction. But once they they are stable for about a year, at least well, six months, nine months a year. Um, we can go back to the desires for the material world and they can begin to work with them as portals of their own development. Mm. But you have to know at what phase to do what. How do you do that? Well, <clears throat> I think the first thing is, and that's why our training includes so much analysis. You, know,
2: you mean your for, own analysis, uh, for, yeah.
0: Yeah, 400 hours of analysis. You learn in yourself what that looks like. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how Jung figured it out, but he did because he certainly didn't get it from Freud. But then it sort of passed down from one good training analyst to another, and it's a question of uh, professional judgment. And sometimes it's not clear. And, you know, with, with people who are not in danger of relapsing into an addiction, I might say, well, we could look at it this way, we could look at it this way. Let's see what bears fruit here. But with somebody who's close to uh, relapsing, you know, who's only been sober for a year, I, I would say, well, don't listen to that. It's crazy. I might say just the opposite to somebody in a different position in the next hour. Right.
2: Well, would you... I find myself... Uh, we just kind of hit the ground running, and we've talked about everything from quantum physics to God, to yeah. determinism yeah. and causality. Um, yeah. Would, would you give some of your personal background? What, what made you so interested in all this stuff?
0: Well, once upon a time, I was an electrical engineer. In the 1960s, I graduated from college in 1970 about uh, the only thing you could do as an engineer at that time was either design power stations or missiles. And I didn't want to do either. And I was terribly distressed uh, in our university the, the Hawks were always the engineer professors. And the whole thing sickened me. And um, I wanted to travel. So I decided to go to the B-Square. I went to South Korea because I wanted to just experienced life differently and, and, and you know at um, that period just was when buddhism was becoming known in america i think dt Tezuki was the first mm-hmm. zen zen came first it was what? probably the late 60s it, it, it to me it was an antidote to all the all the uh, unthinking patriotism that a certain part of my education uh, assaulted us with. Well, that place did a number on my head, I'll tell you. Um, I came back in culture shock, and uh, decided to go to divinity school, not because I was religious, but I just had to go somewhere where I could just be, and get get my life straight, and I got into therapy with a Freudian. Now, Freudians in San Francisco in 1972 were different than Freudians now because humanistic psychology was everywhere. So this guy was Freudian, but very open-minded. And he took, took one look at me and he said, you should be reading Jung. And uh, started reading Jung now. Oh my God, this is what I want. And I finished school, got my degree, divinity and counseling degree. And in that time, met one of my professors who'd come back from Zurich. And uh, I told him, you know, I said, I'm going to be fasting with my young ones. You what what's the like? You know, how lucky did you go over there? He said, well, Lucky, why don't you go? I never occurred to me I could go. <laughs> I said, How do you go? He said, You write him a letter, and you say, I want to go. So I wrote him a letter and said, I wanted to go. They said, Okay, come on over. And you had to wait a year. That time they had a quota. Um, I went over there, and well, it was the best thing I've ever done. And As time went on, I began to realize I had these two interests, three interests really. I'm interested in. Oh, I don't, you know, I say the word theology cautiously, questions of, ultimate questions of meaning and and value. I've never felt comfortable with church. Um, I have, I'm still interested in scientific issues, technological issues. There I have more understanding. Um, even though the computer is a whole generation different, the basic principles we learned, you know, uh, in my engineering degree. So I kind of understand technology in that sense, certainly to a certain extent. Um, and then, of course, my interest in psychology and my interest in, in uh, Asia. Um, how am I going to put all these interests together was the question. And then I discovered Pali's work and he wrestled with each of those traditions in science, meaning he dreamt many dreams of of Chinese women, of course, psychology with Jung and um, the question of guilt and evil in, in science. That's how I got here.
2: What was it in South Korea that, that got you?
0: Well, you don't realize how horrible poverty is into the live, where anything is for sale. And stepping around lepers, picking off their dead skin on the way to work. Uh, the, the inhumanity of poverty. Um, and the wildness of their life. Um, I was in a town with uh, uh, eventually four of the Peace Corps volunteers. What do you do in a town of houses made of bamboo and rice paper? You know, you drink. That's what you do. And so it was uh, <laughs> you drink and, and you, you smoke dope. Uh, I, I don't. I'm clean. I, I have not touched anything. I'm uh, <laughs> a social drink in terms of artificial substances for 20, 30 years. Uh, I, I'm, I'm done with that. Um, all of that was too much for a little 23 year old boy <laughs> from a farming community. Outside. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Oh my God. It's completely um, overwhelming.
0: I, I was overwhelmed. But, you know, I had a good therapist in. Uh, in California, who helped me get ready for Zurich, really, and then those—that my therapist and my trainers in Zurich. I mean, they were masters of their craft, mm. and I am so grateful for that experience to have ex- to have been at City hour after hour with somebody who really knew who I was, who really wanted to see me develop, not into who they thought I was, but into who, back to God, who some higher intelligence uh, knows I am. And um, that's what has allowed me to stay excited about my work now for, oh, what, 40 years?
2: <laughs> I can't I can't help but have uh, Jim Hollis in my head right now thinking about you guys running around together.
0: Yeah, well, we were, we, we hung out, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Zurich was, um, Zurich and Florence, Italy, were the two places that woke me up to see what real culture is about. Not academic nitpicking art in the dark classes, but a culture living erotically where you can feel the eros for this marvelous period of creation. And then the likes of Bonfantz and Meyer, uh,
1: whose expertise in the field were, uh,
0: I mean, it just, we can't ever get near that, I don't think, because they had, they were grounded in a classical education. And we simply are. I mean, I've done my best to catch up but when you you know when you're learning Latin at ten and you're reading Virgil at twelve <laughs> in Latin, that's an advantage. Yeah. And Jung the same way. Yeah. That
2: that was one thing that when I started reading Jung, I I, I think I said this on this podcast before, but I, I called Sean Fitzpatrick and I went, "What in the hell have I done? I don't understand a a word of this." Yeah. This no. is. He's making references every sixth word that I that I can't even pronounce. Good news is that that's abated a a bit. (laughs) I can well I I can can, read it. I can
0: tell you uh, I couldn't get Jung without Edinger. Right. I always read Edinger and Jung parallel.
2: Well, that was certainly for Mysterium. Mm -hmm. I had uh, I want to say I had four books out. I had Mysterium. I had Edinger's Mysterium. I had a. A Latin to English dictionary, and then I yeah. had another one of Young's, maybe one, another one of Edinger's books, who who really just deconstructed his work so elegantly, yeah. so well.
0: Yes. Uh, but see, for these guys, this was second nature. We think they're being snobs. This is this is this is what they lived with. This is part of their daily fare. <laughs> that is when
2: Young will say something like obviously, this is what this means. You know, you yeah. we're obviously... Oh, you know, I've had
0: the same thoughts. <laughs> obviously, my ass. Good for you.
2: <laughs> yeah, thanks for that, Jung. When you were talking about the upper and the lower trinity. Yeah. And because I think that kind of will lead us into mythology, yeah. dreams, fairy tales. and uh, uh, yeah. would, would you speak a bit about that upper and lower trinity and kind of help me understand that?
0: <coughs> well, it's, it's just a different... Um, way of, of symbolizing what I was talking about that there, there was a spiritual level as Jung defines spirit which lifts people up from the trammels of desire let's say and that's what Christianity accomplished it, it, it was a vertical um, enterprise introduced stability but at the cost of boredom And that's the upper trinity. The guidance that comes through pure spirit devoid from its role in material world. So it would be like just getting into your dreams mentally and not physically. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That's the upper trinity. Uh, it's It's what the church has offered. And Jung never disputes that that the early Christian concept of God was um, an error. It's just, it was needed in its time, this sense of holiness that doesn't get seduced by the world. But there's a guidance in that. You hear the parts of our psyche that can guide us out of lust and rage, uh, greed, and so on. Now, the low, but but that's three. You know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And Jung is always suspicious of things that are just three. Because if you look at early images of God, they're always made up of four. So where's the fourth? Is Jung's question. And the fourth is a, again, a three, but on a lower level. And the lower trinity is the guidance of the spirit that comes through the material world, And that's what we're dealing with today, the lower trinity. How can lust, mistakes, bankruptcies, divorces, uh, greed, rage, heartache, how can they actually be the very thing that's carrying the guidance we need to hear to move forward. That's the lower, that's the, uh, the spirit in matter, the lower trinity. Uh, another word he uses is the phonic spirit, you maybe you've heard that, C-H-T-H-O-N-I-C. Phonic means underworldly, underworld. Uh, Poseidon, um, uh, Hades, they were a phonic gods. Um, Persephone, a phonic goddess. So it's just a word but but he what he's interested in is how can lower quote lower events problematically emotional heartache events lead us to grow that's
2: another way to put it okay so why that that does set us up for the conversation about mythology and yeah. and, and numbers that I that I want to be able to go into yeah. at some point so mm-hmm. why why call it Persephone? Why call it Poseidon? Why bring in gods? What are the gods?
0: Well, because they show up in dreams. That's the only reason it's, it's the language that the symbol producing capacity of the psyche uses. And it draws its um, capacity for formulation from the past.
2: Okay, I get. I get. It draws from the past, but it's not exclusively based in the past.
0: No, big difference. Huge difference. And so
2: that it go ahead. No, that's that's where we get off base. Right? You know, as a therapist, when you say, you know, so I, if I have somebody in my office who says, "Look, you know, I get it. My mother did this, or my father did that, or I, yeah, I was hurt when I was eight, and this is what I was doing, and." you know, I know that now what? Yeah, right. Well, exactly. let's get into that. Now what?
0: Let's see what you dream. First of all, do you understand what you just told me, you know, or is it some nice intellectual, uh, exercise to impress the therapist? Right. Oh, I understand that. <laughs> um, one woman just said, oh, I, my husband and I understand that, and he takes care of that for me. She didn't understand it at all. Um, but let's suppose it is understood. And, you know, that's certainly what we're aiming at. Then let's see where the dreams take you. And at that point, it's more likely you will begin dreaming of images from drawn from a historical perspective, but with a present need. For example, I remember uh, recently, uh, a guy dreams of a seriously wounded eagle. Well, eagle is sacred to Zeus. And the man was having trouble with his passivity. So clearly that that eagle was the man's Zeus energy that was damaged as a kid. So that would be an archetypal interpretation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you wanted to say, well, how could that possibly be a personal interpretation? Well, let's suppose he would, his association would be, well, you know, as a kid, um, uh, uh, for some reason, I, I was out walking our dog and... Uh, An eagle came down and attacked me and bit my hand. Well, that's a trauma. So there you would interpret that eagle um, reductively. But when there's been no objective event, and that image appears, and you've clarified that there's no objective event for yourself, then that eagle is a symbol. And knowing that it has represented uh, a whole dimension of masculinity. And antiquity helps us then build the bridge. Well, how's your masculine working? Where where did it get wounded? And so on. And of course, he thought he was stupid. Uh, that's the wound. He wasn't stupid. Oh, I can't do that, he'd say, Oh, I can't do that. Yeah. yeah, yes, you, yeah. Well, that's because your eagle is wounded. See, you, you can create some distance between that negative thought and the ability to reflect on that negative thought.
2: And that generates energy to move.
0: Yeah, and then it gives you objective perspective to uh, to say, you know, you're not ineffective. There is an uneffectiveness in you, and let's change that.
2: Yeah, and get you into facing down some of those things you're scared about. Yeah, definitely. So you had a... I'm assuming when you went to to the Institute, you had an enormous education. And as you were being benefited by those people who came before you, their classical oh, education. Oh, I'll say. So what, how, how did you all get into mythology? What was that part of the education?
0: Well, we had exams. We um, we had to get through the program. You had to go through six oral exams halfway through and six oral exams at the very end. And one of the oral exams, halfway through, was an exam on fairy tales. And just to, to do that, we, we, we would read everything we could get our hands on from Bonne Franz about the interpretation of fairy tales. So in, in interpreting a fairy tale, let's suppose, you know, you, you have a bull in the fairy tale. Well, you damn well better know the bull is sacred to Zeus again, the bull played a role in Minoan iconography, you You would be it, it would be a place where sh, where your examiner can tell, do you know the mythological background of the images in this story? And then can you weave that in to the interpretation you're giving of that fairy tale? That's where it started. Well,
2: and my my question, my sensitivity to somebody listening who says, "Well, why?"
0: Why work with dreams or
2: why connect those images with a character like Zeus or an image like Zeus?
0: Because they are an image of Zeus. They are an image of that Zeus energy. And by being able to conceptualize how that energy was symbolized in the past, we get some idea of what that energy is doing to you in the present moment. Now. Just because Zeus did X, Y, and Z in the past doesn't mean you're doing X, Y, and Z. But the the propensity that Zeus represents is probably active, and by looking at how it has been symbolized, we get some idea of what it means in your dreams today.
2: So these are powers that are kind of coursing through our life experience.
0: Uh, yeah, and 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 often. Uh, not just coursing through, but controlling our life. Mm-hmm. And like that guy, you know, he, he was achieving nothing in life because he thought he was stupid.
2: I probably have that conversation with people 20 times a week. What's that? Uh, the one, you know, the inferiority, the I don't have yeah. what I need. You know, I don't.
0: Um... The fact is you do have what you need.
2: You just are not in touch with it
3: hmm.
2: So today, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, one cool thing about what's going on today is that the, you know, I've got a son who's 13 years old and he was by 13, he was exposed to more mythology than I was at that age kids that come into my office today are, they've got a lot. I mean, it's a little off base. It's kind of like a Disney, Disney version of mythology. That counts. Yeah. That counts. Sure. But it's, it's It's a good one. So, yeah. so what you're saying is that by looking at, I, I'm going to add something into this cause you referenced Horace or, um, Virgil or, uh, I forget which one you were talking about. Um, mythology, classical literature and fairy yeah. tales. And and is is it because they they represent in image form these powers that control and yes. move through us? Yeah.
0: And um, here's another example I, I just saw. Um, a woman dreams of somebody chopping off a guy's head. And she says, oh, my God, you see, that's my negative attitude Oh, my God, what am I doing? But if you know the symbolism of alchemy, that is a very auspicious part of the alchemical process. The uh, unio mentalis, they call it, the one mind. And it has to do with those moments when your your consciousness can separate out from the controlling appetites that have been running your life. Now, if I had known that, I would have allowed that positive development in her to die out of a negative interpretation. Mm-hmm. That's another example.
2: Well, it's a good example because, you know, I notice that when people bring dreams in where they've they're doing something violent or they're getting raped or they're yeah um, they're they're being they're having a sexual experience with. Um, you know, it's like a, a, a heterosexual man having a sexual experience with another man or with yeah. a group of people, and people yeah. tend to, um, you know, of course, when we're acting out these like horribly violent experiences or sexual yeah. experiences, they have this really intense energy, and people yeah. are just distraught.
0: I mean, yeah, just, I, yeah I, terrifying.
2: Utterly ashamed and nervous about bringing that content into the office and, you know, very scared, often scared of what it means, what they're interpreting it on a literal level and it's, it's, it's very scary to them. So let's, let's do a public service announcement here for a second and deconstruct some of this stuff about kind of a literal interpretation versus more symbolic interpretation.
0: Um, always remember you have a right to critique and interpret your dreams and it's always an issue of on what level they should be understood for example a lot of guys have you know who are straight have gay dreams and they often appear at that time when the man's masculinity needs to be bolstered so male seeks male it's a metaphor. I guess if you wanted to have a three word public service announcement is it's a metaphor.
2: <laughs> Don't but, go create an addictive habit to to run away from your yeah. fear. Yeah. Which we see. A or lot. in incest
0: dreams are, are, yeah. are classical in this regard. Yeah. Uh, it can mean that there has been, you know, abuse, um, it can have a totally different meaning of going back to to the depths in yourself, particularly if it's a man and his mom, uh, to recover part of yourself that you've lost. But you wake up, and you go ooh. But the meaning may be very positive.
2: Yeah, I think about the, especially how how terrifying a rape dream can be for women with whom I've worked and it you know to begin to understand that on a different level can can take some some time and conscientiousness Marianne Lubman has written
0: a whole book on that she did yeah I'm trying to think of the title this is The Unravished Bridegroom, I think it's called it's it's the study of uh, Hades and Persephone Hades comes up and yeah Takes for down, yeah. And um, well, I uh, won't we'll try to second guess there, but uh, it's a very lovely piece of work. And you know, it's
2: a woman writing about women;
0: it's a lot easier for a woman to take than if a guy writes about
2: Right. Them. Yeah. Well, that um, at least your your uh, our, our public service announcement about metaphor <laughs> is, can hopefully. Um, know and i I think on another level i think it's important also to understand how that is also critiquing a rigidity about sexuality and you know we're we're such a you know this bucket or that bucket kind of crew right now that that to to find a little bit of the opposite in your own bucket is is really scary for a lot of people and (sighs)
0: I tell you, that's what terrifies me about uh, this tea party and uh, my evangelical stuff. It gives experience no place. And people think just because they have a desire they have to act on it. They don't, or they can. It's up to them. <clears throat> but it often has a message. You know, I come from Mike Pence country. And uh, God, the rigidity against any sort of physiological meaning is highly destructive
2: yeah so i it, I want to again recollect something that you and I were swimming around earlier yeah the g word God yeah, yeah. and how you know from from being in theology and then getting into Jungian psychology you know, there is such a religious orientation and I'm just curious if we can kind of jump in there headfirst and oh, yeah. talk about God. Well, I should tell you, I graduated
0: from divinity school. an atheist. And when I, when I started with my analyst in Zurich, she said, well, what are, you, what's, what are your religious views? I said, well, I'm an atheist. And she said, well, that's a good place to start. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, yeah, Jung clearly is aware, and nothing is more clear to me. There is something bigger going on. And the way I like to frame it is we are born to be somebody. That's in there. And the religious task is learning who that is and making it real in time and space. you can find parts of that in the church. Largely, I think the church has become, as Jung says, the place people go to avoid religious experience.
2: To hide, yeah.
0: Yeah. But there is such a thing as a genuine religious experience. I think the Red Book, if you've read it, I think the Red Book is a genuine religious experience. I agree. Uh, the, the story I tell folks is, is, is I've worked with some people who who call themselves recovering Catholics. And they, they literally miss the church. They can't go back to it because of reasons that are obvious, I'm sure. Yet they, they miss it like you miss a lover. And we get into our work. And they discover who they are. And they put who they are into practice. And then they dream... They're in the mass taking communion, and they're satisfied. It's like the earth becomes the altar. And what Jung is trying to show is how the formation of identity is the incarnation of a transcendental reality. That's what he means by religion.
2: God, the earth becomes the altar.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's
2: great. <clears throat> I've seen that several times. That's
0: and then they can let go of the church. You see, they 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 integrated the church. Mm-hmm. They've integrated with the church. They experience that transubstantiation in projection in the mass. Now the transubstantiation is a quality of their own life. They, they take who, I would say, but I don't have to say, take who God gave them to be and then make it real in time and space. And then I could... Say no, I'm not an atheist. I certainly don't. Uh, I don't have any connection with the church. I don't care to have any. Mm-hmm. I think it's. Uh, I'm not saying there. It, I've seen it do. I have seen it do good things. Me too. I work with a guy, a guy here, who's a preacher, and um, he, his church was very close to a large, huge factory. So these are tough characters who are in its congregation, factory workers. And um, they made a concerted effort to open their church doors to the Muslim community. So I do see it has value. And certainly in the African American community as an agent of social change, most definitely. For me, I get my connection
2: to God. That's yeah. I had a friend of mine who I interviewed, he's a priest. Um, he, he suffered a, a loss of faith in his, in, you know, in religion. And he said, he went through the activity of being, what he said, being a priest to the mystery. And that, that held, that held him and it, it, it actually helped him reconnect with The church, in this church. Yeah, yeah. well, I think it
0: can be done.
2: Yeah.
0: And in a way, I'm kind of envious of those folks, but it's never happened for me.
2: Where do you find it?
0: In my work, um, in my own development, in hearing, trying to hear why I'm on this earth and and, um, doing that work. Uh, The people it brings me into contact with uh seeing the benefit of the work that's what keeps me going mm-hmm.
2: i'm just looking out in my i've got this office i'm looking out at art and there's a tree outside and oh you know it i don't know in, in this moment you know this is a even just this right here is a powerful moment and yeah yeah you know, certainly relationship i think that these kinds of conversations are really value and get that you know I hope so yeah everything else kind of falls away and i think that's something about doing the work that we do you know people people will see me and they'll say god how do you like listen to people's problems all day long like yeah like for for me if if i'm if i have more people that i'm seeing in any given day it it quickens me a lot more I can get completely energized and mm-hmm. and I think it's in part just being present every session yeah. with the next person and and seeing people get better. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well that's that kind of reciprocity that I think it's you, you yeah. wrote that at some point in the book, the connection and it may have been connection and relationship, but you were talking about reciprocity and connection and where where power doesn't um doesn't right. show up. Right. I like that a yeah. lot. Uh can I we,
0: thou is what Uber called it.
2: Yeah. So can we jump into cuz this is kind of the area yeah. that that you're really you're really into and I, I don't have as much connection. You said earlier that Jung didn't like threes, but I know that numbers have been a an important part of your yeah. work. Yeah. And I I don't know. I I see a lot of people who who, who, again, it's one of those scenarios where they know just a little bit about numbers and then they kind of, yeah. uh, you know, all these. So would you clarify that? Why in the world we pay attention to numbers in the first place?
0: Well, because originally numbers were not quantifiers, they were qualifiers. Numbers were originally not uh, quantities, they were qualities, so there, were, there was a oneness of things, a 2 of things, a threeness of things. And that's the way the dreams use numbers, to communicate qualities. Um, Juan Franz wrote number and time, investigating the first four numbers. Um, so one, and you gotta remember, of course, as with all dream work, we can't say, oh, X equals Y, but there's a propensity that one dreams could have to do with being oblivious.
1: You don't see distinctions, Naivete. Uh, Two dreams usually come along with this conflict. And dreams of three uh, have to do with resolution. And
0: four with completion. Here's an example where I'm going to contradict what I said a little bit because uh, what I said is is on average, and you know the, the dreams can be anything. I was working with a
1: couple. Let me get this straight. Um, she dreamt.
0: Oh, they were looking for a new apartment, and she dreamt they found. An apartment in the building, in a building. And the apartment she liked
1: was on the third floor. The apartment he liked was on the fourth floor. And the third floor was always sunny. The fourth floor was a mixture of shade and sun. That summed that marriage up in one dream. She wanted everything. To be cheery. He wanted to be able to discuss the positive
0: and negatives. They never got past that. They divorced. Uh, But three can be an image, a positive image of resolution. It can also be that upper trinity that wants everything light,
1: good. So if if you're
0: aware of these really details. You know, I, I uh, went for a walk and I saw some geese. Well, how many geese? Two geese, three geese, or you know, it, it, unless you are aware that how many of the thing is in a dream, you don't ask how many of the thing is in a dream. And often, how many of the thing is very relevant. Well. Like what floor that that dream uh, dream goal was was very important. Well. In fact, it was, it, it was so profound it, it led to divorce. She would not allow, I couldn't have any negative feelings. He couldn't have any negative feelings. Her kids couldn't have any negative feelings. No wonder he wanted to And he left.
2: Back to the machine.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that's that that I think is absolutely right. When emotions, when the uh, Range of emotions have no chance to live and be expressed. You, you might as well be uh, a mechanical apparatus.
2: So when I don't know, that, that's a good when feeling comes up, and we say, you know, people go, "I feel it. I feel anxious. I feel. Uh, yeah. I feel all that stuff." What do you do in those moments? Because because that to me oftentimes sounds like it's pretty dismissive of. Feeling.
0: can be um, it's dangerous to generalize but sure. I think this whole mania about anxiety is actually quite simple you either have
1: emotions or you have anxiety and anxious people are repressing their emotions and we got a whole industry supporting that with medication Now uh in general leaving that
0: aside I think um with any emotional state I would say to them sleep on it let's see if we can get an image personifying the emotion you're feeling and let's come back and talk about how your psyche symbolizes what you're feeling It could be a need you're not addressing. It could be a fear that's taking control of you. We don't know. I'm not going to come forth with some theory that says, oh, this emotion means this. But let's try to get, we're always looking for that image uh, and then evaluate. Uh, And I think generally it is a part of the person they don't know with needs they can't admit. And once they make that transition and say, yeah, this is part of me, Underneath this emotion is part of me that I don't yet know, and as they get to know, the emotional upset dissolves. Uh,
2: well, and it, it, don't you experience, well, uh, this is kind of my experience, that people are really scared to consider the deeper reality of their feelings, because I think on some level they're very scared to change their life.
0: Yes, definitely. And make make ripples around them. Yeah. I mean,
2: that... I, I <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad you said that because that's really the... What are the consequences and the implications of me... You bet, yeah. ...changing this?
0: Yeah. If I say this, what's he going to do to my marriage? Yeah. Maybe my, my wife doesn't want to hear this or uh, maybe I need to hear it because I am being Neglectful of America. I mean, you could take of a million scenarios. Yeah.
2: <laughs> what are you uh, What are you working on these days?
0: Well, um, let's see. I've got a podcast. No, no, a webinar coming up in October with the uh, Asheville Group, and I'm going to do something on the Red Book. One of our participants um, in, in the Red Book class painted her vision of an image that Jung talked about, which he did not paint. So I'm going to talk about how the Red Book is still alive, how it's inducing imagery today. Uh, let's see. And then I mentioned that lecture in Los Angeles on. Um, archetypal aspect of uh, science and uh, I'll probably do something on the uh, erotic transference and countertransference that's something I would like to publish eventually that those, those two things
2: you had that uh, my, uh, ten, that reference to erotic transference counter in at the heart of matter I you know, yeah that was well I've
0: got a whole reason. series of dreams that, and the archetypal background that I want to do which shows how the body led the analysis.
2: Ah, oh, that's, um, that's great.
0: Yeah, and Daryl Sharp, you know, he's, oh, he's in his 80s now. He's published everything I've done, and I love working with that guy. He's so easy to get along with. Um, he said, well, maybe I'll come out of retirement if you do that book. So we'll see. <laughs> um, uh, it might be
1: something for next summer.
0: Who knows? That's good. I really uh,
2: I really enjoy your writing style.
0: Yeah, well, good. I, I, I enjoy writing. Well, actually, I enjoy having written.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's pretty agonizing, I mean, isn't it? It's like a.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's. Yeah, I, I lose sleep and I get wacko. Um, and then I'm going to go to Portland and do something on the Red Book again. So I think the immediate thing is going to be that uh, the, uh, well, I'm going to call it the psychoid transference, the transference mm-hmm. that, that took its origin in the body and how the dreams resolved it. Because if there's any egregious act done by therapists today, it's breaking that sexual trust. Yes. I hear that again and again and again. Uh, And there's a way to deal with it. Um, Thank God I had a good supervisor in Zurich who uh, helped me work with that. Um, And I want to get back to, I think, that dream about the archetypal foundation of science, but more the archetypal foundation of technology. Why are we so addicted to these pieces of silicon? You know, have you certainly you've certainly been in a restaurant seeing a couple eating dinner, not talking to each other, texting on their phone to somebody else? What is going on?
1: Why do we do that? Um. So
0: something with technology, I don't know exactly what, but. Uh, and then maybe you know, I wrote that book um, about Toynbee and you. Maybe something about history. I also don't know about that, but that's what's going on in my head: history and dreams and um, technology of dreams. I'll be dead by the time it's done.
2: Hey, but isn't that an anxiety though? I, 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 I'm—I've got that anxiety about God. I, I no. hope I can finish something. You don't feel anxious.
0: Oh, yeah, I want to live long, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I want to make sure uh, I have suddenly become very interested in my health. Um, I want to live long. My mom just died at 100, and I'd like to be – I'll be 70, so I know, I'd like to have another 30 years. What is it? you know, I, this does going to sound strange, but I just feel now I'm starting to get going. It takes a long time to learn this human stuff, to feel – Confident, I can do what I can do. I can't do what I can't do. I know where the I know at least where some of the pitfalls are. I feel confident in what I have to offer. I'd like to now to start teaching it. So I hope I am around. Do I worry about it? I think about it. Yeah, I don't want to. I want to keep going for a while. So far, I've been healthy, but who knows?
2: Well, it sounds like it's generative for you.
0: It gives me a lot of energy. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, your mom, 100 years old. That's, what a gift. Well,
0: uh, too much I've under. But I just saw John McCain's mom is about 105. (sighs) (sighs) You know, if, and my mom is clear to the end, so if I can stay clear to the end, then I want to live well.
2: Yeah, as they say, you've got good genes. I hope so. Uh, You're, we share that interest. The Red Book seems to come up in my life yeah a, a lot i i had a, a paper that i was writing on the red book i was kind of bumbling around in it and i, I really it's hard. It's i know hard. it's, it's hard. well this happened like three times and so the third third time i gave it a shot i that's funny my daughter is hollering down beneath the stairs. <laughs> how um, how old is she she's 22 months oh wow yeah Thirteen-year-old and a twenty-two-month-old. Um, wow! So there was a. I was writing this paper on the Red Book. I fumbled around and I, I was kind of confused yeah. about the PhD and finishing it and all that. And I came home one night. I had finished reading the Red Book. It was the third time I'd read the book. I marked all over the you know my book. I mark in the margins and everything. I came home. My dog had opened up my backpack pulled out the red book and destroyed it it was literally covering my every bit of floor because he got really anxious and he would he would freak out and do some pretty um wild behaviors I sat in silence and my wife and son just kind of stared at me and they started cleaning up as I just sat there just oh. stunned <laughs> and this they, is the big red book well, no 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 no, thank you thankfully. It was the little oh. um it was just cuz I was just kind of, you know, marking it all up. Yeah. So by by the end of it, I I you know, I I dealt with that. I can l- l- say that literally my dog ate my homework, which yeah. I, I didn't know you actually that <laughs> I know, I didn't know that actually happened. And uh-huh. I uh I, my my i wrote on the castle in the forest which has always interested me that one story oh yeah very interesting and rich and uh, my <laughs> my the title of my paper was uh, begrudgingly the castle in the forest and it's a particular if we can say it's a particular myth that's meant so much to me and it's a repeating motif that keeps i return to that story all the time and I realize when i'm stuck in it i'm stuck in that scholarly space. I'm out of touch with the kind of erotic dimensions of my life, and I'm. Uh, it's been helpful. And also, I've got a pretty fascinating narrative that accompanies that uh, <laughs> The Red Book endeavor. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I just got
0: an email from a guy who said he thinks the Red Book's out of date, and I said, no, no way. We are still living that stuff.
2: I, I mean, I just, I just recommended, I recommended it to a client of mine this morning, and um, I loved reading your piece. I'm just getting into this. Um, uh, Kate Burns, I'm, I'm interviewing in two weeks, and she's got a, a chapter in this, um, the Red Book for Our Time that that Stein and Arts, um, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. have, have put together. I enjoyed your piece on Abraxas. I enjoyed that too. I, I little
0: trivia century musician, the title of Praxis
1: came from uh, of Santana's album, came from one of his band members who got it from Hesse's novel, "Ding it. Hesse got it from his
0: psychiatrist. The psychiatrist got it from Young. Wow. So there's a direct link between Woodstock and you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I got it. Mean, in an odd way, I got to tell you, HESA has now made it into this project, this uh, three or four different interviews, including the interview that I did yesterday with Alejandro Chaul. No kidding. He spoke about HESA, how Siddhartha was important. Earlier, My my friend and colleague, Rodney Waters, who's actually leaving on... I think Sunday to go to Zurich. He's at ISAP, and oh, uh, he he. Oh, I think he knows my friend Gary Hayes. He does. I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. tell him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he's when we spoke for our interview. He referenced how important Damien was for him, and yeah. he's now kind of reading it again. And so I, I think I need to. I read Siddhartha, but I haven't read Damien. I think I need
0: to read that. I read everything Hesse wrote. Hesse worked with Jung for a
2: while. I, yeah, that. Yeah, Yeah, I figured
0: that. There's a book called uh, A Record of Two Friendships. It's a discussion of Miguel Serrano, who was a uh, South American diplomat somewhere, was friends with Jung and Hesse. And he talks about the two of them. You ever get
3: interested? Well,
2: I've got to be interested. He's buried
0: right there in Switzerland too, so I I haven't seen his grave, but it's tempting.
2: Well, let's let's start closing out. Is there is there anything else that we need to uncover a bit? You feeling like we we did it? Crossed every T. We hit the ground
0: running. We
2: sure did, Uh, Gary. I got to tell you, man, this is cool. To be able to connect with um, you in this way, it was fun talking. I knew
0: it'd be fun and, yeah. and inspiring.
2: I'm I'm really grateful, and I gotta, I, you know, if, if I don't, you don't need it, but I'm gonna push you on on those projects you got going because the 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 uh-huh. background of science is a very important idea.
0: Yeah, I'll do that for sure in LA in January.
2: Well, maybe at some yeah. point you and I can circle back up and and kind of sure. see how that. Went and circle, you know, just kind of circle around that topic in particular.
0: Absolutely. Sounds good. Yeah.